Hey listeners, Dr. Taryn Marie here from Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. If our podcast speaks to you, consider leaving us a warm review at the top of the page on Spotify or at the bottom of the page on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews and opinions mean a lot to us, and it allows us to reach more good folks just like you. All right, now on to the show. Welcome to Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience. I'm Dr. Taryn Marie, and on this series, we have the opportunity to hear from well-known people who tell their often surprising, lesser well-known stories of resilience. I am so delighted to have Mike Zeller with us here today on Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience. Mike is an expert on being in our zone of genius. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Being in our zone of genius is allowing ourselves to be in flow and to do and be the things that bring us the most joy in our zone of talent to contribute at the highest level. I'm so delighted to have Mike here with us. Join me now for an incredible interview with Mike Zeller. Welcome back to Flourish or Fold. We have with us today, Mike Zeller, who wrote the book, The Genius Within. And in case you're wondering, Mike has created the most complete process for identifying and developing your zone of genius. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. Taryn, so excited to be here and honored to be on your show and always enjoy connecting with brilliant minds like yourself. So can't wait to dive in. We've both been looking forward to this episode so much. I just love your story and everything that you're doing in the world and the way that you have such a desire to support people in stepping into their zone of genius and finding their life's purpose and identifying what brings us alive. And it's just incredible to watch you do this amazing work and the ways that you're using your zone of genius to make the world a better place. I think there's something really important about both of us and the work that we're doing today in times where the world is shifting both you need a spirit of resilience but you also need clarity for those next steps because the clarity helps give you certainty and when you have certainty you act with more confidence and courage and conviction i can't wait to dive in and unpack how i got to this because resilience is even a core piece of it so looking forward to it absolutely well that's wonderful so of course i have to ask you what does it mean to have created the most complete model or framework around how we develop and identify our zone of genius? Yeah, so really it came down to, in 2018, I went through a season where I lost over a million dollars in a pretty short period and I got married during that season and I just had to let go of a bunch of things and let go of elements of your old identity. And, and I knew there was a greater purpose. You know, when you go through the trials of life, uh, as you even talk about, you know, what, what if this is happening for you instead of to you? And, and I was in that season and I was like, you know what? There's a great gift in this. And I knew that it was, I was, I was destined to be a poisonous mushroom eater in a lot of regards. You think of an old nomadic tribe, you send out a few people to go and test the berries and test the mushrooms and see if it's, you know, take tiny bites, see if it's poisonous or see if it's a truffle. 
right? And and so I knew that's part of my calling and my journey. And what I've created now is if you go through the four steps, and the four steps are basically find your unique talents, where you're amazing, where you also suck. Get really clear on that. The more clear you are, the more precise, the more effective. Second, identify your defining life moments because they also give you clues. Those moments, those messes that led to your message, the breakdowns that led to your breakthroughs. Um, you know, there's a lot of these things. There's no accident. Like you look at Steve Jobs leaving Apple initially. That catapulted him in a new direction, led him to Pixar, led him to uh, save an apple years later, right? Uh, for or the third thing, your key relationships, who brings you life versus death? Where do you have this natural cluster or network of relationships? And then the fourth thing is your values and passions. And you assemble the data from all of those uh, parts of your life or all the segments. And it's like, you get them, get everything on one table for the first time in your life. And then patterns pop. It's like, it's like Jim Collins and Good to Great and all his other books. He's like, he walks into researching what makes a company go from good to great. He doesn't have the assumptions. He just has, he might have some guesses. I mean, lets the data pull out the truth and the evidence. And same thing, I think in life, no one had organized the process. I felt like in mentoring entrepreneurs, I can't tell two different entrepreneurs to do the same exact thing because they're wired different. They have different gifts. They have different paths. And I found in my own process of hiring certain coaches or buying certain programs, I'm like, this thing didn't work for me, but I see why it works for them because they're wired like that. So that's how I kind of came up with the process. I love it. I love it. That's so amazing. And I was curious, I've never heard anyone before describe their role in society as a poison mushroom eater. (laughs) So... I would feel very, very worried about you sending you out into the fray to collect morels. I might or find not. the truffles, though. You got to remember, I might I, find the truffles. No, you're not going to be either, right? So tell me about how being a poisonous mushroom eater, how does that dovetail and support the work that you're doing around Zone of Genius? Yeah. So I originally got that from a, a pastor named Erwin McManus, and he's a futurist and writer. And he, he described himself as a poisonous mushroom. And he was like, and, and he's the guy that I resonated the most with while I was in grad school. And I was like, all right, it's this concept around if you look at the diffusion of innovations and how innovations spread throughout culture. So you've got the innovators that are the first like two and a half percent, then the early adopters are like 12 and a half percent, I think. And then you got early majority, late majority, et cetera. Innovators, you look, Apple did not create the first smartphone. They did not create this first, you know, they are really early adopters more than innovators. Yes, they innovate, but they oftentimes buy innovation and they kind of watch and see, hey, what what gains traction? And, and there's certain people that like Elon Musk, Elon Musk is just freaking out there and bold and he's controversial. He has not pros and cons, but he's innovating and he's going to fail or he's going to either flourish or fold. And he's been close to brink of bankruptcy a few times, multiple ventures. And you got to have that innovation spirit. And for me, I know part of my pathway is to be uh, one of America's top entrepreneur mentors is what I feel in my spirit, which means I also need to get out there and, and try some things. I'm going to I'm going to have some things that don't work. And I, I knew that from the beginning. 
And I was okay with that. And obviously I have to manage risk a little bit differently now that I'm married and have a baby and all that. That prepares me. We learn so much more by our failures and by our mistakes. Daniel Pink, he's wrote the book Power of Regret, found that more people regret what they didn't do than what they did do. And I want to be that guy that has very few things that I regret not doing. Mm, Very well said. You started to intimate about some of the challenges Mm -hmm. that you have faced really leading up until this moment. And so for you, Mike, as you think about these significant moments of challenge, change, and complexity that you've faced all across your lifespan, what would you say is one of those most significant moments that's really formed you into the person you are today? One of them is definitely in 2018, right before we got married and just, yeah, I'd say the crap at the fan in so many regards. Two months before we got married, my cash cow business disintegrates, my business partnership kind of fell apart essentially while we were in Florence, Italy, choosing our wedding venue. And I come home to a teen crisis with, they had an issue with my business partner. And, um, and I, I made a decision where I, he requested to stay in the partnership, but take some time away from the team, approach the team. Team didn't like that idea and they loved working with me, did not love working with him. And I lost my team uh, with, I lost a key figure that then snowballed into losing uh, other key members. And that was a cash cow business. So I was working five to 10 hours a week. Um, and I was like, oh crap, now I have just enough cash, uh, you know, coming in, projected, et cetera, to pay my bills, pay for the wedding, uh, things like that. And and I had other startup baby businesses that weren't really producing a lot at the time. And, uh, and I was like, I got to grow these things up real fast and I'm getting married. And I had a real estate flip that was way over budget and way behind schedule. Then I ended up losing 250 grand on, uh, went through a foreclosure with that one, um, private foreclosure, but still sucked. Um, and it was just a, you know, everything kind of crumbling in and yet I'm remaking myself. I'm literally stepping into a marriage, right? And we had this beautiful wedding in Florence, Italy, where we had 60 people fly in. Plus we had a national celebration. So I was like, so all these <laughs> internally, I'm a little stress ball and externally it's beautiful. Like beautiful things are happening and it, it was rough. It was a really rough season, but I knew there was a gift and a purpose behind it all. That was one of the main seasons. And then the other season I would say is my wife's battled depression pretty severely during this pandemic. And um, and she's a three-time suicide survivor from before we met, a lot of family trauma. So I've ha- had to, in a way, get my amateur master's degree in navigating trauma and helping heal trauma. So that's that's also been a heavy load. But we're coming out of that. I feel like springtime is in my life and in my soul uh, and in my business. So the long, dark, sometimes hard winter is uh, finally behind me. Yeah. And talk to us, Mike, about just that incredible host of challenges, how it's formed and shaped you to be the person you are today. How are you different? From my wife's side, navigating trauma, I have so much more appreciation around people that battle depression and people that battle mental health and battle 
you know, family dynamics. And I'm so much more aware I can help heal people through trauma now because I've had to help my wife navigate. And, and I've found like it's not a silver bullet. It's not just therapy. It's like for us, we're doing neurofeedback. We're hitting the brain waves, the chemical, the relational, the body trauma, the energy that's trapped in, the beliefs, the triggers, the patterns. We're we're creating a whole new recipe and it, it's helped me be aware of my own trauma. I was not as conscious around it. Like even last night I had an issue come up of like, ah, oh, I probably still have some trauma from 2018 and 2019 from the season. Um, and trauma is a genius blocker. It's a prosperity blocker. It's a courage blocker. And I look at what we're going through right now and in our world coming out of COVID, but who knows where economically and all those things go, there's more trauma in our world. And that's why what the work you're doing, the work I'm doing is even more important because if my obsession is unleashing human potential. And if this is a block, then how do I eradicate, shatter, destroy this block, heal this block, whatever it is, and help people step into their greatness. Mm, I love that. It sounds like maybe your next book. Yeah, it's 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 uh, leading into twice more and how a crisis can remake you. And and uh, and I'll probably have some additional deeper stuff around, you know, this whole process around that I'm co-creating with my wife and and the others. I mean, her family was pretty abusive and pretty insane. Some of the things and uh kind wonderful people in many regards but also deeply broken and unhealed trauma if it's not healed it carries on to the kids and uh people don't stop their patterns they just repress and oppress um so uh anyway but then but then leading entrepreneurs it's like man so many of the leaders that we you and i interact with it's like man they they've got some some challenges and challenges around internally, emotionally and and uh, stress and anxiety and why the great resonation and why people uh, like this world is dealing with more stress than ever before. How can we combat that and lead people into their deepest area of gifting and, and deepest area of purpose? Yeah, so, so true. I wonder if you had a sense when you and your wife got married, that all of this would sort of happen and you would be on this journey together? I had a sense when our first night we met, I remember internally saying, oh crap. It was because I knew in my spirit that I was about to go through a very intense season of business. And this is like 2015. I thought it was my 2015 to 2017 season, but it was really, the next few years. And I was like, man, I didn't want to bring a, a woman with me through that. But it, frankly, if I didn't have her through my darkest days, I don't know if I would have made it in many regards, because it was just me as a high achiever type three Enneagram, like, man, when, when stuff isn't working, when you're used to like seven out of 10 things working, and now you're down to like two or three out of 10 things work. <laughs> And you have to let go of all these old identities. It's pruning is painful. It sucks. And uh, so I knew we would go through some rough patches, but I didn't think it would be that rough. And then I didn't fully expect having a baby like we had a baby, as you know, and that brought up all these old traumas. It's just like these memories from our childhood 
just got re-brought up and and we're releasing them and healing them but it's like man that's been intense Mm, it really it really sounds like it yeah but you know i think uh muscle when you in sports right i used to play sports and like you go through training camp you go through these mental it's really testing boot camp training camp it's testing your mental resilience and Mm -hmm. in your emotional and physical resilience but uh i have so much more wisdom and muscle than i had before and i know that's also to help others navigate their next steps yeah yeah absolutely what about for you mike on the business side i love how you talked about how the journey that you've been on with your wife has changed you in ways of being really aware of trauma and mm-hmm. informed your work. What about how you were changed through the challenges associated with your business? I think in the in the business side, it forced me to let go of things that were part of my past and not part of my future. And you know, for me, I had a very successful career in, in real estate. If I stayed in real estate, things were easy for me, frankly. Like I had done exceptionally well investing, selling, building a reputation in that. I could do that in my sleep. I was intellectually bored three years into it, and I was in it for almost 12, 13 years, 14 years. But it served me. It helped me find that next path. And and I look at my life, you know, I'm 42 now, soon to be 43. I'm like, dude, most men, most women, they make their most money in their 50s. But the 40 to 60 range is your most productive season of life. I'm like, man, it's like I got I had six active businesses at one point that was leading in some capacity. And now I have so much more wisdom, muscle, confidence and some traumas as well. But I'm ready to kick butt the next two decades, like the next two decades, I'm going to make it rain and it's gonna feel great and i'm gonna help others make it rain and i'm just freaking pumped i mean like henry ford age 43 bankrupt 10 years later wealthiest man in the world you know hmm. and steve jobs went through his kind of crisis midlife crisis uh uh you know elon musk about my age was about to lose tesla and about to you know lose spacex and so i think this is gonna be a freaking great great next couple of decades. You know, I love the examples that you used around Henry Ford and Elon Musk, and there's so many other good ones. Do you think you have to go to such a, a low point of being bankrupt, nearly losing something to learn the lessons that then have the potential to sort of catapult you forward? I think they're the most valuable lessons, but I think If you can avoid it by studying others, having great mentors, having great coaches, um, people like when I went through that season, I read I had read uh, John Maxwell's book Failing Forward when I was in my early 20s. And it was like seven or eight, like really good stories about people that overcame obstacles and failure and failed forward. And I had that in the back of my mind. It was already part of my philosophy or my poisonous mushroom eating philosophy. And and I was like, you know what? I know I'm going to go through some failures in life, but I'm just going to double down. Like they're going to be my learning lessons. And even when I started, I started three businesses in one year, like 2015 or 2016. I don't remember which, but I was like, I'm going to flop. Some of these things are 
I'm not going to work and I'm overstretching myself, but I'm going to find my limit and that's okay. I'll get a lifetime of education in about two or three years is how I looked at it. And I feel like I did 100%. Like they, they really, it's not necessary that you crash and burn, but it's necessary that you learn from the mistakes of yourself and others. And the more you adopt that philosophy, like, do you know what Sarah Blakely's dad used to ask her every night at dinner and her brother? Do you know the story? I don't know the story. So Sarah Blakely, as in the founder of Spanx. There's a Fortune magazine article about this. Every night at dinner, and there's other stories because she tells it often. Her dad would ask her and her brother, what did you fail at today? Mm. And if they didn't fail at anything, guess what they had to do? They had to go and fail at something before they went to bed. Because he wanted them to have this mentality of like, hey, it's all right. Get out there and try things. It's not failure. It's just learning. It's growth. Failure is when you quit, when you throw up the flag of surrender on life. It's just learning. So that's that's how I look at it, I guess. Mm, I love that. Looking back now at your former business, would you go back and do anything differently? That's a hard question because like... Do I regret some of the pain and suffering and the, the, that I caused my wife, that I caused during our season of like even honeymoon and stuff like that? Sure, those are things I, I, would, have, I would love to do over. And I would have cut ties. I would have done a more graceful exit and closing things down eventually. Or I would have made that hard decision to that business partner and said, hey, I can't let you stay in. And instead of taking his idea to stay in for six to 12 months and working on his anger issues, at the end of the day, that would have been my crutch. And I would have stayed in, in that business longer than I should have. And in that industry, when I'm like made for something more, and I'm kind of that stubborn, super loyal person that just hangs on to things longer than I should. <laughs> And I have to manage that a little bit better and and cut ties sooner. I I would change some things, but I'm also very grateful for how things turned out because they catalyze. One of my favorite metaphors, do you know how much a Boeing 737 weighs? I don't. 485 tons. So how does this big hunking metal bird get into the night sky carrying 300 passengers, lifting through something invisible? called the air and it floats or soars through this invisible thing called the air because it hits enough resistance. And if it doesn't hit enough resistance, it stays on the ground. So I look at everything that we go through in life. Hey, I got to hit enough resistance for me to soar or I'm going to stay grounded. That's really powerful. Yeah. Thanks. That's one of my favorite metaphors. That's so good. Yeah, that the resistance is actually what allows us to take flight Mm -hmm. when so often I'll speak for myself. When I experience resistance, I'm like, oh, maybe it's not meant to be. Maybe it's not meant to happen because so often there's a belief with resilience that the path is made clear in Mm -hmm. some way if it's quote unquote meant to be. Speaking of how did you stumble into this quest for resilience and this obsession with the spirit of resilience? So about the time I got to my pre and post doctoral fellowships, 
And I was working with people with brain injury and spinal cord injury in -hmm. graduate school. I was thinking this is the moment when resilience and I really synced up, right? And I love this Maria Rayner Rilke quote, which says, Mm -hmm. life is lived forward, but understood, you know, looking backward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so when I looked backward and up until that moment, what I found that was not the moment that resilience and I were really syncing up. I have this belief that resilience finds us. We don't have to go searching outside of ourselves to fill ourselves up, to become something that it's already within us. Resilience has already found us. And so as I looked for me, starting in high school, there was a man that came to my window when I was getting dressed as like a 14-year-old freshman in high school. My bedroom was on the ground floor. And so I went over to turn off my stereo. This is these are the times that mm, we were living in. That's right. And saw a face. You know, the blinds were down all the way, except there was a sort of crack of my window open. There was a face at the bottom of my window. Wow. And this leads to me searching my mind for, you know, how to make sense of this in my 14 year old brain. And I kind of come across the story of my dad outside pretending to scare Mm. my brother and I. So I'm like, dad. Mm. And he says, take off your clothes. You're beautiful. I am like, not dad. Mm. So I, you know, go running from my room and I'm calling for my parents And we call the police and we make a police report. And essentially their conclusion is, ladies and gentlemen, this is probably nothing to worry about. Someone passing through the neighborhood, Mm. really a fluke, go on with your lives. Yeah. Right. And so then it was eight or 10 months later when my parents were out of town and I'd already always kept that window closed tight. And there was another window in my ground floor bedroom that faced the back of the house, faced our our garden. And I just tried on like a new bikini from the Gap. My girlfriends and I had gone shopping. And when I removed the swimsuit, I heard his voice. Wow. And he was standing right outside the screen saying, I've been waiting a long time for this. And so for me you know, and I'll sort of wrap up the story. Three things became true. One, my childhood bedroom, which should have been one of the safest places became profoundly unsafe. Yeah. You know, two at 14, here I am like naked in front of a man for the first time. It's a very vulnerable, disarming, creepy, awful, weird. um, So many other (laughs) descriptors experience. And, and three, you know, it was clear to me at this point, that this was not a fluke. Yeah. You know, this was someone who had seen me or found me and was targeting me. And something really traumatic happened in that moment. And I'll sort of land the plane is my parents were out of town, as I mentioned. And so we had these babysitters staying with us and they were upstairs. You can relate to this, Mike. They were doing like the nighttime routine with their two toddlers, you know, so there's lots of like Mm -hmm. noise and lots of stuff going on. And so I'm calling for them to come and help and they don't hear me. Mm. So this guy's standing outside the window and he says, they can't hear you. No one is going to come and help you. Wow. And that for me, you know, there's these little sort of 
moments of trauma, right? Where that traumatic moment becomes crystallized as a trauma trigger, let's say. And so for me, for a very long time, one of the things that I've been working on is trusting that in those moments when I meet people, Mm. someone will be there, be able to hear me, right? Literally and figuratively and come and help. Yeah, and our body, the way our bodies are, we're, we're both the most complex. I mean, we are the most complex beings on earth, at least. And your body accepted that as a truth then. And so when it's accepted as truth, then it's like it just assumes that's the way it is. And then now subconsciously you have to unwork that and undo that over time, which you've obviously been doing and have done. But it's like, man, yeah, our our bodies, uh, what we accept as truth is kind of crazy. You know, it's it's irrational to say that no one would come and help you, but it but your body believed in that scary moment because it had evidence that no one will. You know, his behavior escalated. He ended up uh, raping and attacking a woman in my neighborhood in college and went to prison for 20 years. Wow. And then I also was in my own version of captivity because I met the diagnostic criteria, unsurprisingly, for post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. for about two decades as well. Yeah, I So, that. yeah. Um, so that's just one of the one of the sort of moments, you know, to your point about this idea of of twice born and really doing the work around trauma and figuring out what the work is, you know, what are the strategies, what are the yeah. therapies part of my journey, you know, has either, you know, has sort of brought resilience to me. Resilience has found me in this journey. And I have also, you know, been seeking resilience and what are the therapies and strategies that uh, I can use to heal and and grow. Us as human beings, we're so complex, like, but the animal kingdom, have you read Healing Trauma by Peter Levine? You read that? I haven't. Yeah. Mm -mm. So he's one of the top experts on trauma, and he tells this crazy story. Scientists are always tagging polar bears, and what they do is they fly over a polar bear with a helicopter, shoot it with a tranquilizer gun, pick it up, carry it back to the lab, test all its vitals, tranquilizer wears off. And they noticed for years and years that these polar bears would move frantically when the tranquilizer would wear off. And then finally someone had a video, and watching the video up above, they looked and they played it in slow motion and they realized the polar bear was still running. The legs were still moving like it was running away from the helicopter, even though it's now in the in the cage or whatever. And what they what clicked was like, hey, the, the animal kingdom, their body is naturally designed to release the trauma. But us as human beings, we can hold it in. It's why, like, if mm-hmm. you look at a nature show, my dad didn't let us watch MTV as a kid and we didn't have cable, but we could watch PBS and watch the nature shows at seven o'clock at night. And we watched wildebeest or zebra running away from some lions and then it gets caught and it's dragging away, but it's still alive. And somehow the wildebeest escapes from the jaws of the lion. Two minutes later, it's freaking eating grass. I'm like, dude. If I'm eating a hamburger and fries or a pizza right after I was just almost dead, something's wrong with me. I'm, you know, like you're, 
But that's what this wildebeest is doing. Two minutes later, it's like nothing happened. And it's because their bodies are more naturally designed. We almost have to learn how to release it because we just don't know how to process those things. So it gets trapped in our body for, like you said, two decades. And we don't even realize it's there. So Mm -hmm. 100% crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're very familiar with the five practices Mm -hmm. of particularly resilient people. Is there, when you think about how you've faced these moments of challenge, change, and complexity, is there a particular practice that really speaks to you, to the experiences you've had? I think the vulnerability one is definitely a piece of it. I mean, all of them speak to me because I'm like in the middle of the challenges, gratitude, uh, connection, like you're so much more likely to bounce back if you have tribe and support around you. And I wouldn't have you know, been able to bounce back through that season without supportive friends and family and my mom and others, my wife, of course, especially. But the vulnerability side of that is, you know, my word of the year is intimacy. And I'm just leaning into that. And when I have moments of like, I'm realizing that I sometimes in my personal life, I sometimes struggle being playful and fun. And because I'm like in the back of my mind, it's like, oh, I have to hold things together. I have to be serious. I can't let loose. I can't have too many drinks. I can't do this. I can't stay up too late because I got to get up and crank through. And if I don't do it, things could fall apart and crap could hit the fan. And so that was one of my realizations last night. And so I texted my wife and her sister, who's super close to her, because we see her a lot. I am helping her with one of her business ventures. And I was like, you know what? I need to lean into this. I'm sharing this. This was an aha that hit me tonight. I am a playful, let it rip type dude at my core, but I felt like it's not safe to let go. So I'm practicing the vulnerability. That's uh, I'm not perfect at it, but I know I need to lean into it and be emotionally vulnerable, share like I'm more open now. uh, And I've gotten permission from my wife to be more open about the weight of her family dynamics and and challenges that we've dealt with and helping her heal from trauma. And I'm going to be writing more about trauma. And it's a heavy burden, frankly, on both you, the person that went through the trauma and your loved ones that are also helping you carry and process because, you know, just a few months ago, my wife was having panic attacks three or four times a week, sometimes a couple a day. And I'd be in the middle of a work day and she says she can't take it anymore, hands me the baby, and I got to go on uh, Zoom for an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm like, crap, what am I going to freaking do? And that was just my life. And I was like, I, I, we were actively getting her help, but we weren't through that dark season of her own trauma. So now we're in a much better spot. And she's the neurofeedback and the therapy has been exceptional. Hmm. That's wonderful. For you, when you think about this word intimacy, that's your word for the year, what does the word intimacy mean for you? And and how does that sort of create a connection point to the practice of vulnerability? Good question. Um, For me right now, it means leaning into emotional intimacy. Like saying, hey, this this is really crappy right now. This is what I'm dealing with. Not in a like, complaining. I don't have a complaining spirit, but like, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm making it through, but you know what? 
and also creating that safe space for others to be intimate and vulnerable because as you know this this world has been intense for leaders and for uh people of all types um the last few years so uh and intimate finding safe people that it is and, and i do have safe people that i can share uh vulnerably both in the good and the bad like you can't share victories like i have a lot of victories too um and i need to be able to be celebrated as well as celebrate others as well as suffer together you know that that concept around that so yeah leaning in emotionally when it doesn't feel safe with safe people ideally i love this insight that you've had that your ability to be playful is about feeling as though you're safe or in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. I think it can open me up more in this next season and help me open my clients up to another season of fun and joy. And I remember that old Norman Rockwell quote, men are only boys grown tall. And I want to bring more joy and levity to the rooms and environments I'm in and the leaders that I serve. So like as, as children, play is really discovery and curiosity. Why do we have to be so serious when we become adults? What if even mm -hmm. your, your pursuit of resilience is there's some play and adventure and joy? Obviously, we find joy in learning and growth. What if we could double it or triple our spirit of joy and play while creating it actually enhances genius as well like if you look at a, there's a elon musk school have you heard of the elon musk school for kids that's all about problem solving mm -mm. um so it's 180 bucks a month it's not bad and it's like you do it in supplement to your other schools your kids are eligible for it because i think it's six to 12 years old or something and developed it while he was at spacex or helped and in, inform the development of it and a core part of it, it's very unstructured, but it's geared towards problem solving. And in problem solving, there's curiosity. And part of curiosity, curiosity and creativity are fostered when there's more play. So you create space for more play. I'm not talking about just going and playing with Tonka trucks or something. But your play and the creativity and your when your mind is relaxed and in a playful state, you're actually more creative. So that's a quest for me is to be more playfully creative. Yeah. Is the Elon Musk school, is it online? Yeah, it's online. So uh, let me grab, I'll grab the link here. Okay. And I forgot the name of it, but I can't wait for my daughter to uh, get in it as well. So <laughs> That's yeah. great. That's great. Well, what about for you, Mike, what might be maybe one or two or three key lessons that you've learned about your resilience from the teachers of challenge, change, and complexity on your journey. Yeah, and the school is synthesis.is. Uh, and the key lessons, key lessons, number one, find your genius. A lot of my mistakes and a lot of my pain could have been aborted or minimized if I was playing in position. There's a reason Socrates said to know thyself is the beginning of all wisdom. One of my other favorite examples, D Hawk, the founder of Visa. You know, most people don't know about D, but they know about Visa. But after he retired and sold Visa, 
He was one of the most pioneering guys in the banking industry. Debit cards and credit cards were not commonplace in America in the 1950s, but he really made them much more commonplace with a lot of his innovations. But he sold Visa and sold his equity in the early 80s, and he started researching the, the very best leaders in the world. And he wrote for publications like Harvard Business Review and others. And he found the very best leaders in the world did one thing that other leaders did not do over and over and over and over again. And it was that they focused more than 50% of their leadership energy on leading themselves over and over. They were asking themselves questions like, what is the right role for me? What's most needed for me? How do I manage my emotions, my trauma, my awareness? How do I not, how do I lead others? How do I influence this person? How do I lead up, down, sideways, etc.? How do I lead myself into exactly the right position? You know, if you look at extraordinary results, sports, business, art, it's when people are playing exactly the right position that they're most geared for and they're in in synergy or synchronicity with others that are in exactly their right position or most most right position, right? And so if I look at my business successes, I'm really freaking good at growing things. I'm really great at growing people. I'm phenomenal at attracting A players, but I'm not great at managing operations. I stink at long-term administration or finance or legal. I don't want to fool with that. It's just not, I can do it, but it doesn't bring me life. And so how do I step into my zone of genius? Because also another thing is, you know, our bodies will tell us the truth. That's why the FBI does lie detector tests on their bodies, not on our words. If you ask your body, hey, do I want to do this? Do I long to do this? And promise you anything that you're procrastinating on, your body doesn't want to do. Your taxes, your body doesn't want to do that. <laughs> Unless you're an accountant, then it's like an interesting problem to solve. Well, those are clues. In this season of my life, I'm hyper intentional about designing partnerships, designing roles and mentoring the leaders that I serve to play as close as they can to exactly the right position. And over and over, I see guys step into joy, step into purpose. Creativity is unlocked. Their passion returns. When you step into that, there's usually that $1,000, $10,000 an hour activity that's within there. If you can gather the data and let the patterns pop like popcorn. So that's the first thing. Zone of genius, get really freaking clear on that. And that's why I feel very aligned about my mission around this work. Secondly, get a great team. It's tied into the first one. And then thirdly, embrace failure because it's your gift. It is your resistance that lifts you into the night sky, but reframe it as progress then you don't interpret it as failure. Instead, it's like, I'm growing through this. This, this is causing me to lift off into the night sky and get mm. excited about it. It's a great metaphor. I love it so much. Well, I know people are going to be really excited to learn more about how to best be in their zone of genius, especially in moments of conflict and when they get to flex their resilience muscles. Mm -hmm. Where can we find out more about the work that you're doing online, Mike? 
You can go to MikeZeller.com, of course, or on any of the social media platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, at the Mike Zeller. And then also, if you want the book, GeniusWithinBook.com, you can grab it for free there. Just pay shipping and handling. So GeniusWithinBook.com. Got to hit the www.GeniusWithinBook.com. And then also have a free six-step guide to finding your deepest area of genius that you can text the word genius you. So it's genius with the letter U to 474747 and you'll get that and have an option to pick up a copy of the book too. So those are the main sites and thanks for asking. Sounds great. Well, I'm feeling even more in my zone of genius after having connected today. So thank you so much for being mm -hmm. on Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience. I've so loved chatting with you and getting to hear your story and go deeper. It's been a tremendous honor to have you here with us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Taryn. My pleasure. Till next time. I am just so blown away by this conversation with Mike Zeller. And I want to thank you, Mike, for your transparency, your authenticity, your vulnerability in sharing not only your own journey and the losses that you've had, but also in your wife's willingness to share how she's grappled with mental health and being a three-time suicide survivor. I think in this day and age where there's such a focus and an appreciation for the importance of mental health, wellness, and well-being, that we get to destigmatize these conversations around our mental health. And Mike, I'm so delighted that you were able to share more of your journey with us. I know there are so many people who can relate to you. Well, until next time, this has been Flourish or Fold, Stories of Resilience with Dr. Taryn Marie. Please do share our podcast, like us, download it, so we can get the word out to more people just like you.